Welcome to the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Each week leading up to the 10th annual Sleep Roundtable, I'll be chatting with one of this year's renowned industry expert speakers. If you haven't already, be sure to get registered for the Roundtable. It's the leading dental sleep conference for sleep dentists and their teams. And it's in Dallas on October 7th through 10th. Go to sleeproundtable.com to get registered. Now sit back and get ready to learn a thing or two in preparation for this year's highly anticipated Sleep Roundtable. Enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Eddie Saul. He happens to be the only AASM certified sleep medicine physician in the state of New York. And he actually has more hats than I can count. Uh, you wouldn't believe how many things he's involved in. But hey, uh, Dr. Saul, speaking of hats, did you know that there are more criminals when they're arrested wearing New York Yankee hats than any other hat <laughs> in sports? And it's not even close. Well, uh, you know, I'm a Yankee fan. I have a Yankee hat. I think I'm going to not wear it then. <laughs> no, but but seriously, Dr. Saul, for those of you who don't know him, and I'd be shocked if you don't, he's a dentist, and he did a lot of work in TMJ, oral facial pain, uh, also an ENT. I'm not sure which you did first. Were you an ENT or a dentist first? No, I was, uh, uh, Ken, I was, uh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak now. Uh, I was a uh, general dentist for uh, three, well, I did a general practice residency in a hospital. Then I practiced for three years as a general dentist with my father, who was a general dentist. And then uh, I went on to medical school. And while I was in medical school, I worked as a dentist part-time throughout medical school and residency, doing primarily TMD and oral facial pain at that point. But I did practice general dentistry for three years. Okay. All right. Uh, you're making a lot of people jealous, although with all the schoolwork, yeah, that's, that's a lot of education. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend when I did yeah. anybody. <laughs> well, but then you got an MBA uh, with uh, it was kind of centered on healthcare and and healthcare policy. That's that, now what caused you to go that route? I don't know. I had probably had some poor blood flow to my brain one day, and I thought it was a good idea. Now, what I did actually is um, there. I got a, a mailing from a, a university, and they talked about opportunities for physicians with. Um, business degree. And I just thought it would be a good thing to learn. So I did an executive MBA program. This is from 1998 to 2000, where I went to University SUNY Binghamton. It's about 70 miles from here. And I went every other weekend for two years. I would say the thing that was most, the thing that really helped me the most is just looking at things from a different perspective. I know you have an accounting background, don't you? Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we get into the world as a dentist or a physician, and some of us work for a corporation, some of us run our own practice, and I just thought it would give me a little bit better knowledge of the business world. And I, and I learned a lot of good things. Uh, it's helped me in my career and other opportunities that I've been able to uh, pursue. So it just kind of came out of nowhere as I decided to do it. I guess. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I, I hear you. That's kind of why I went the accounting route to, to help me. And I'm not convinced because you got an MBA and that's what I always thought I should have done was an MBA, but no, I got an accounting degree. I just, I just like math. So, well, I know you're not going to speak about this at the round table and we'll get to that. The 10th annual sleep round table coming up in October. 
Uh, Dr. Saul is going to be there, and we're going to be talking about that topic in just a little bit. But it's, it's interesting to me with your insight into healthcare policy. I would expect you to, to know a little bit more about it than we do. And I know during COVID, and incidentally, you also have a telemedicine platform company, which we can talk about as well. But in COVID, I know at least in my practice, telemedicine just went crazy. We were probably 50% of our visits were telemed, if not even more than that. But then now we're seeing some retraction, both from Medicare, United Healthcare. Does your knowledge in the healthcare in healthcare policy help you in in maybe negotiating that? Because it's ridiculous. It's it makes no sense to me why we don't have more telemedicine. It just makes sense. Well, I don't know if I can answer that, Kent, but um, it, it seems as though when we were in this situation the government and a lot of agencies were concerned about patients getting healthcare. And so they relaxed the rules and regulation on telemedicine. And, you know, certainly uh, a lot of people uh, benefited from that, both practices delivering care and patients being able to get the care. I guess one of the concerns when they relax the regulations is that it gets overutilized. And that may be why they're pulling back on it. Um, I think what's challenging for telemedicine is there's the telemedicine on your own patients, and then there's the telemedicine on patients in a different state. And so uh, in order to do that, you have to have a license in the state where the patient resides. And what I would like to see, I don't know if we will see it in the near future, is uh, relaxation of those state laws, because um, it's kind of foolish that you need um, a uh, license in Oklahoma if you live in Texas and the patient lives on the border that in order to do a telemedicine consultation on them. But that's currently the way the rules are. And I think a lot of states are very protective of their their um, rules and regulations. I hold, believe it or not, 42 medical licenses. And it's overwhelming the amount of work I have to do. I have two dental licenses in both New York and California, but the, the licensing um, is uh, costly. It's um, uh, very time consuming. They have to be remo removed every two years. Uh, I mean, renewed every two years. So in essence, when building a platform at a national level, it's very challenging and expensive. And um, for the dentists or physicians that utilize telemedicine on their own patients, it allowed them during COVID to see their patients and get reimbursed. And, you know, the, the hope is, is that we can continue to do this because I think for some of us, we enjoyed it and uh, we found it was efficient, patients liked it. And who knows what public policy will really be, <laughs> what's gonna really happen uh, as we kind of emerge from this pandemic. Yeah, we really enjoyed it while it lasted. And, and obviously we're still doing telemedicine. It's still out there, but I just wish they would poll the patients and, and see what they wanted, but that's not their interest right now. No. Yeah, and, and for those of you that don't know, when, if Dr. Saul uh, ever emails you, he has 182 letters behind his name. No, no, <laughs> I, I can't imagine all the degrees and what that would look like if you really put all that stuff behind your name. My last name only has four letters, so I had to That's, that. Yeah, you got to make it, you got to extend that, yeah. So what what caused you to, you know, so you were a dentist and you were an ENT and, and you knew something about healthcare and 
you were working with TMD, et cetera, but then you branched off into sleep after that. So what was, what was the impetus for that? What caused you to say, you know what, this sleep thing, I think I'm going to do this. Well, you know, it's very interesting, Ken, because I remember distinctly how it happened. It was back in, I believe, 1998. And a friend of mine said to me, Eddie, can't you make me one of those things for snoring? And I said, what things for snoring? And he was a real estate guy and he knew about oral appliance therapy and I didn't, you know, I mean, I vaguely heard of it. So I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you know, can't you make me one of those appliances that pulled the jaw forward? And I said, well, I guess I can make you one. Let me find out about it. So what happened is I said, well, how difficult could it be? You take in those days an Elgin impression, yeah. you make a stone model. I remember the George Gage. Remember those? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I would pull the jaw forward. How far I would pull the jaw forward? Who knew? Because, you know, we didn't really back then have um, uh, a good scientific way of really um, analyzing what we were doing. And the field was quite new, as you know. So at the beginning, I thought that sleep medicine was only involved an appliance on the top, an appliance on the bottom. You bring the jaw forward, how complicated can it be? But the interesting thing is the more and more I learned about it, the more and more I learned it's way more complicated than that. And in essence, yes, it is about pulling the jaw forward and opening up the airway. But I think, too, what happened is I was a new ENT physician at that time. And, um, you know, we were doing the surgeries, primarily a U-triple-P, you know, where we take out the tonsils and a portion of the uvula. And, you know, the patients were in tremendous pain. Uh, it didn't work very well. We didn't know it at the time. So I was ripe for trying something new. And then I think what happened is um, uh, I started pursuing this and there was an opportunity to go back and get my boards in sleep medicine and without doing a sleep medicine fellowship because they were short on sleep physicians. So if you passed a whole serial laundry list of criteria, you were allowed to sleep, sit for the sleep boards. And so that, that's what happened. I started taking a bunch of, it's funny because I would take a board review course and say, oh, this is not a review. I've never had this stuff, you know, but uh, sleep medicine is very complicated. And, you know, the reality is, is there's a lot more to sleep medicine than obstructive sleep apnea, but that's what gets the most intention. And, and, you know, the, the other thing, insomnia, which is the most common sleep disorder, it's very difficult to treat it. I think despite having, you know, many, many different sleep disorders, uh, what we treat and what gets the most attention is the thing that's most treatable, which, which is obstructive sleep apnea. And I think like you, you, you get going with this and you see the results and you just get, it, it just consumes you after a while. Yeah. You know, right. uh, I'm sure you've experienced the same. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. But putting on your ENT hat now, take off your sleep physician hat, put on your ENT hat. And, you know, I'm a big believer in having ENTs on our sleep team. And I know it depends on the demographics, what areas you're in. Uh, there's probably ENTs in everybody's town. Uh, obviously, I think they're more numerous than sleep physicians, so it should be easier to find an ENT. But how, how, how would you suggest they interact because I think it's going to be mostly dentists that are watching this. How should they react with their ENTs? Uh, when should they refer? What should they be looking at? 
Uh, I know this is a little bit of what we're going to be discussing at the roundtable, what your topic's going to be on. Sure. No, I think that's a great question. I think that um, what a lot of ENT physicians have learned is some of their best referrals are, I like to call them sleep dentists. And sleep dentists, in my definition, is a dentist who uh, primarily limits their practice to um, oral appliance therapy and OS, treatment of OSA and other sleep disorders. You know, I think that a lot of dentists struggle with referring patients to the sleep physician. You know, they screen the patient. We've all been through it. They send them there for a sleep study. Sometimes they come back. Sometimes they don't come back. They get frustrated. And in an effort to build their practice, um, they have found that the network with the sleep physicians is very difficult to establish. I think that ENT doctors look at things maybe a different way. And um, certainly, uh, one of the things we'll talk about at the sleep roundtable is the role of nasal obstruction in obstructive sleep apnea. And I think certainly the dentist who has a sleep medicine practice or dental sleep medicine practice can learn to evaluate. I think really what should be part of their workup is to look for nasal obstruction, uh, particularly in the nasal valve. And I know that, you know, certainly by doing the caudal maneuver, which we'll go over and what's called the modified caudal maneuver and just the questions in an intranasal exam, the dentist is going to discover that a lot of patients have nasal obstructive issues. And the interesting thing about it is you only see what you're looking for. And right. if you're not kind of trained in your mind, and to be honest with you, Kent, I wasn't looking for it carefully enough in my oral appliance therapy patients. And, you know, even though I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor, somebody would come to me for oral appliance therapy, and I'd be kind of focused in on doing the oral appliance. And sure, I'll do a nasal exam, but I wasn't really um, focused in on do they have a nasal valve problem or what we call nasal airway obstruction problem? And now I look for it. And I, and I really think that every dentist should look at this for every patient because number one, the patients will get better performance from their oral, oral device or CPAP if they go in that direction. And it's an excellent way to establish referrals back and forth. The ENT doctors are gonna love when a dentist sends them a patient who needs a nasal procedure. And then I think that the ENT doctors, very few of them really do oral appliances, maybe a few scattered people here and there, but I think they're gonna get the patient back. And it's a great collaborative effort. Aaron Medical, uh, which um, is the company that makes the Viver procedure, um, uh, has, has recognized uh, how important this relationship is in treating patients. Uh, to the optimal uh, situation. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt of uh, sleep dentists that have been doing this for a while. We all know that when somebody can breathe successfully through their nose, our appliances are going to work better. There should be no reason for us not to refer patients to an ENT to help them breathe better through their nose, if for no other reason than a selfish reason, to, to have us have more success with our patients. Sure. But patients will appreciate it. And the fact that, and I've learned recently, I haven't known about this Bivare procedure for very long, but ever since I learned about it, we are now getting the nose score on all of our patients and doing the modified caudal. And it's interesting how many patients we're finding with nasal breathing issues, and which I've known 
But like you said, you only know what you're looking at. And until you start asking patients and asking specific questions and doing that maneuver, that's going to be very illuminating. And I, and I hope your talk at the roundtable will create a, some kind of an impetus for these dentists to start looking at the nose more. Yeah, well, you know, that would be my intention. And we'll, we'll go over the anatomy and physiology, and I'll show examples of uh, various cases. You know, the bottom line is, is that uh, what we want to do is get uh, better success. And I think, you know, the, the, the sleep, but now wearing the sleep physician hat, so to speak, when the sleep physicians are critical of oral appliance therapy, which always has amazed me when you look at the statistics long-term in uh, CPAP. But that being said, one way to um, give a better out, to provide a better outcome is to address this issue. And, you know, I think that uh, oral appliance therapy, we know the, uh, how effective it can be. And we're going to improve its efficacy if the person has a patent nasal airway. We just haven't had a great mechanism for that before. You know what, maybe, Ken, I'd like to share with you the story of how this uh, uh, Bibera procedure was um, conceived. It's, it's very interesting. The physician behind it, his name is Dr. Scott Wolf. And I was recently, when I was in Dallas, he had the misfortune of sitting next to me at the dinner. So we talked for about three hours. And I said to him, look, you don't have to listen to me. You can go talk to somebody else. But he goes, no, no, it's great. So the problem, uh, the situation in how the company w w uh, evolved is his son was a lacrosse player and he couldn't breathe through his nose, okay? And so he went around in the San Francisco area for various consultations with otolaryngologists and took his son there and his son was having breathing problems. And so uh, what happened was he found out that the problem was in the nasal valve and he said, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? And the answers he got is, well, we really don't have good treatment for it. And so it's because he had a personal situation with his son that he literally went into his garage and with another um, entrepreneur slash serial inventor, and they came up with this um, temperature controlled radio frequency. You know, it's just kind of interesting how things can be developed out of the use of personal use. And, and that's what started it. And, uh, he said, well, if there's a problem, there's got to be a solution. If there's no solution, I'm going to create the solution. And that's how it was born. It was fascinating to talk to him. Interesting. I think a lot of inventions are born out of necessity on the, the part of the inventor. They, I, it, that doesn't surprise me that that's how it happened. Sure. I wish was, I was smart enough to invent something, but, you know, I just copy what other people do. Yeah, I'm not an inventor either. I'm terrible. I'm, People always say, when are you going to develop your own appliance? And I, every time I say the same thing. Well, so I, I, I find it interesting in talking to the Aaron people, um, they've said that a lot of ENTs like to do, you know, the turban, turbinectomy, or not the turbinectomy, but turbo, septo turbos, whatever yeah. you call it, septo turb, yeah, right. turbo sept. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Uh, and do that at the same time. They don't want to do it initially as an in-office procedure, which is what it's designed to do. It's supposed to be something easy for the patient. So it's, it's easy for me to suggest to a patient, hey, this is easy. You get a little numb. It's a 20-minute procedure in the office. You don't have to go under. 
and you don't, there's no surgery, but maybe not all ENTs are on board yet with doing it as a single procedure without that septoturb. Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting thing. You know, it, so much of it comes down to changing your mindset, I think. And um, I, I think what uh, the issue is, is we never really had a good problem with the uh, nasal valve. It's kind of like the analogy I use is if a patient asks me about tinnitus, you know, I'll tell them what I know. The reality is we don't have a great solution for it, but I'm never going to ask them if they have tinnitus because I really don't want to know. Right. I don't want to know that either. Yeah. <laughs> so with the nasal valve problem, we've always not addressed that area. I mean, the, the procedures that were done before were cartilage grafts, spreader grafts, things that were very difficult to do, taking a piece of cartilage from the ear or from the septum, creating a little pocket, uh, suturing it in there. And, you know, it was time consuming, didn't work that well, and it was very challenging. So I think the nasal valve issues have always been there, but we didn't have a solution. So we kind of look past the nasal valve because uh, we, w- what do we do? We do what we know how to do is the septum and the turbinate, you know, and um, the nasal valve, I think at the meeting, I'll go over the physics behind it and how it works and why it's so important. But uh, the bottom line is a little uh, increase in the airflow in the region of the nasal valve causes a dramatic increase in uh, airflow. And the issue is, is that if you have nasal obstruction, you have unstable oral breathing, you know, and that's why it's so important to uh, breathe well through your nose. And, you know, I think that this association between sleep dentist and in-office nasal airway uh, obstruction procedure, there couldn't be anything better for us and, and for them as well, the way I look at it. Well, thanks, Dr. Saul. We don't want to give them too, informa- too much information. We <laughs> want them to come out and, and hear your talk. That roundtable is coming up in October. And of course, Dr. Saul is going to have his own session. Um, and I can confidently say that we're all looking forward to what you're going to share with the community of sleep dentists. And for those of you still listening who haven't registered for the roundtable, it's the 10th annual sleep roundtable. Another good reason to have Dr. Saul out there. This is a big one. It's October 7th through 10th in Dallas. We're expecting hundreds of dentists and their sleep teams from all over the country. You definitely don't want to miss it. So go ahead and register. Go to sleeproundtable.com. That's not a difficult thing to remember. We'll see you all in October. Thanks again, Dr. Saul. I can't wait to hear you in October. Okay. You're very welcome, Ken. You take care. Thank you. Yeah, bye now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Sleep Roundtable podcast. Don't forget to head to sleeproundtable.com to register for the 10th annual Sleep Roundtable and to subscribe to our show. See you in Dallas in October.